Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Anthony Marks, winner of a 2009 Anthony Award, presents, Hardboiled and Dangerous, the many characters of Earl Stanley Gardner. The talk was recorded on July 28, 2017, at Pulp Fest 2017, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mike Chomko, of Pulp Fest, introduces Anthony. Gardner is best known for, of course, Perry Mason. Uh, but prior to uh, creating that character, he wrote a ton of, created a ton of characters for the Pulps. Uh, wrote a lot for Black Mass, for Detective Fiction Weekly. Did he do Dime Detective too? Uh, once in a while. Yeah. Once in a while. But he, he wrote a slew of stories, created a slew of characters for these magazines, and just going to talk about them. Thank you. Uh, Gardner wrote over 650 short stories and novellas um, while he was writing for the Pulps. So it's really hard to talk about all of his stories. Um, so this presentation is really just, um, I had a hard time selecting categories, but I tried to pick a few categories and discuss um, the different ones. Um, Gardner was a lawyer by trade. He struggled immensely with ADD. Um, he almost didn't graduate from high school. He lasted about a month in college um, and then decided he was going to read for the law. So instead of going to law school and going through that route, he decided that he was going to work in a legal office and um, read the law books and understand the law and pass the bar exam that way. Um, once he did that, he got to be a fairly popular lawyer. He was known for his antics, very much like Perry Mason was. And he had quite a successful practice at it. However, for the most part, that meant that he had to be in the office every day. And for the same person who did not like being in school every day, he hated being in the office every day. And what he did is he decided that he needed to get out of the office. And he started looking at different careers. And he found two in which he thought could be done from virtually anywhere. Um, the first was sales, and he tried sales for a few years. Um, he tried selling automobile parts, um, which is, this is back in the 1910s, 1920s, so cars are relatively new. Um, he was going around trying to convince people to buy new cars, um, mostly with their um, tires, things like that. He would take an automobile and drive it up the steps of the state house. He would do all sorts of stunts like this in order to get people to buy new cars. But um, there was a recession just around 1918, 1920, um, and that business went under, and he was back in the law office again. Um, having tried that, he decided that writing was the way to go. And he was either convinced that he was not going to be like this or did not know about the fact that millions of people write, millions of people don't ever sell a story. He has decided he was going to start writing and so he set a plan for himself that he was going to do 10,000 words a day. Um, for those of you who know authors, that is a phenomenal amount of work for a month. Um, 
a lot of people who are authors that I know maybe write 80,000 words a year. So here he was doing 10,000 a week. He was doing approximately in a week what other authors are doing in a year. Um, he put in millions of words before he ever got to his first Perry Mason novel. Um, unfortunately, at the beginning of his career, many of these stories came back. I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not, but he sent his story into Black Mask um, that was not very good. One of the editors there thought it would be a big hoot to tell um, the editor-in-chief that this was going to be their front page, this was going to be their main story for the issue. So he sent it on to the editor-in-chief, who proceeded to rip it apart and tell everything in a long, detailed memo what was wrong with the story. Well, after he had done that, then they came out and said, oh, this is just a joke, da-da-da, sent the story back. They did not realize that they put that memo inside the story. So Earl received back this detailed memo with everything that was wrong with the story. And this story was actually called The Shrieking Skeleton, which he turned around then, rewrote, and sold to Black Mask. Um, not quite sure if it was because of the quality or because they were just so hideously embarrassed that they had done this. But in any case, this was one of his first stories that he sold. He had sold a couple of humorous pieces before that, um, but they were more um, anecdotal rather than a real story. Um, from that time in, in the early 1920s um, until the early 1940s, Gardner continued to write and sell uh, novelettes, novellas, short stories to the pulp magazines. Um, his last story would actually be in 1961, Argosy Magazine, which he was doing some other work with, and I'll talk about that a little later, actually asked him to bring back Ed Jenkins, who is one of his most famous characters, um, and he did that. He brought Ed back 20-some years after he had written his last story about Jenkins. Um, the first type of story that Earl decided to do was the Western Minor. Earl loved the desert. Um, one of the reasons he wanted to be out of the office was that he wanted to go into the desert. He wanted to explore. Um, he was fascinated by Baja. Um, Baja, Mexico at that time had not been mapped. It had not been charted. There were large portions of it that were just, when they published a map, said unexplored. And he was fascinated by this. So he was very much into the desert. He was very much into mining. Um, liked to collect stories about um, legendary gold mines in the area and things like that. So he thought um, you should write what you know, and he decided to write um, these Western miner stories. Um, one of the things he had trouble with, though, is that he was selling them to people in New York. The people in New York had never been out west and they didn't care if these were true to life or not. They wanted a good story. So he would tell them, but this is true, this has actually happened, and they were like, we don't care. And they would point him to the stories from people who'd never been west of the Mississippi and say, this is what we want to see. And this was a major frustration for him at this point. Um, Earl had a real interesting philosophy about the desert. He felt that the desert made the man. Um, that if you could survive in the desert, you could survive anywhere, that um, the desert challenged you and you either succeeded or you failed. 
if you succeeded, you could do anything. If you failed, well, you died and that was the end of you, so you weren't going to have another chance. Um, and so these are the kind of characters that he wrote about in these stories. Um, he actually carried this over into his real life. Um, his mother passed away. His father was in very bad shape. He convinced his father to go out and spend a significant amount of time, a month or so, out in the desert with him. Um, sadly, the father um, passed away about a month or so after that, but his contention was that if he had gotten to his father sooner and had more time to spend with his father out in the desert, that his father would have survived um, his mother's death and would have gone on to have a much longer life than he did. There are a couple characters that he really wrote about. Um, Bob Zane was one of them. Um, Zane, obviously, of course, is the tip of the hat to Zane Gray. Um, he was kind of an odd character in that every story, Bob was a different type of person. He had a different career. He had a different um, location where he was at. And he was just this character that Gardner selected and said, oh, I have a plot for him, and I'm going to take Zane because he sells, and I'm going to put him in this plot. And so he really wasn't, there wasn't any kind of arc to the story here. Um, Zane was just whoever Gardner needed him to be at the moment. Um, the other stories that really was our series out of this were the Black Bar stories, um, which were much more conventional Western stories of the time. So someone who suggested these types of stories to him, this is what he wrote um, trying to sell these types of stories. So this was more of a character that was foisted on him by New York than he wanted to write about. Um, the next thing we came up with was the non-Perry lawyers. Um, there are some things that you see about these lawyers. They either tend to be crusaders or shysters. Um, there wasn't any real in-between with his characters who were lawyers. Um, the people that he knew from um, reading for the bar, reading the law like he did, and passing the bar without going to law school, a lot of them fell into the shyster category. Um, these were some of the people that he hung out with while he was um, learning the law and while he was developing his career. So these are the types of people that he wrote about were some of the characters who were like this. Um, Donald Lamb is someone who falls into that. Um, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the Cool Lamb books. Maybe? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, these of, a, of Earl's series that he wrote, he wrote three series. Um, the Cool Land books are the most closely aligned with pulp fiction. Um, his pulp stories and the Cool Land stories have a lot in common with each other. Characters cuss, um, the plots are involved, the characters tend to be gangsters, those who are down on their luck, things like that. Um, Perry Mason, after a while, kind of got cleaned up for movies, television, radio, and so he kind of became distinctly middle class. Um, ex with a couple of minor exceptions, Gardner did not want Cool and Lamb to be made into movies, radio shows, or um, television. He liked them being the way they were. Um, I do have up here The Knife Slip, which was just released last year um, by Hard, Hardcover Prime. Um, 
the story behind that was I was doing my research. I wrote a biography of Earl Stanley Gardner, which is at my agent now and hopefully it's going to be sold. But um, I was down in Austin, Texas. The University of Austin has 635 boxes of material related to Earl Stanley Gardner. Um, so there's quite a bit of material. Um, I was very fortunate in the estate gave me permissions to look at anything that's within that, including the things that have been off limits uh, from the time of Earl's death up until I went to visit the archives. And one of the things I went through and read, um, there were some materials that had not been cataloged yet. And the best materials, every time they brought out a box and it had a grocery bag in it, I knew that's where all of the good stuff was. And I opened up a grocery bag and one of the papers in it is a rejection letter from his editor saying, you can't publish this book. He said, there's two things that are wrong with it and it's never going to sell. The first is that it's too raunchy. Well, this was 1939, so I'm thinking when I was there in 2010, I was like, 2010 raunchy is not going to be 1939 raunchy. It's probably not even going to be PG at this point. And so the other thing was, the editor said this was going to, this had been the planned second book in the series. Um, and he wanted to see more character development. Um, character development was not something Gardner was big into. He liked his characters moving. There would be a little bit of character development through the dialogue, through the action, what the characters said and what they thought, but not a lot. So at this point, there had already been, um, in 2010, there had already been. 29 Cool and Lamb books, so I was like, uh, at this point, character development is not really going to be that much of an issue either, because of the fact we've already got to know these characters through 29 books. If we don't know anything about them now, we're not going to know it. And so um, I talked to the editor-in-chief of Hardcase, and he was very interested in it. I went back to the estate and said, I had asked the librarians, I said, I don't want to see this because I was down there for a very short amount of time each trip and I, if I'd have sat and read the whole book, I would have not gotten anything else done. So I said, I don't want to see the book and, you know, but I just want to know, does it exist? And they look, went back through their records and they said, yes, it's in the collection here. And I said, how many pages is it? And they told me and it was book length work and I was very excited about that. So this was actually nominated for a, an award this year which is so cool because Earl has been dead since 1970, which I think is probably one of the longest times between um, a death and an award that there's been out there in the mystery field. Um, getting back to this though, there were a bunch of other lawyers that um, Earl liked to write about. Uh, one of the ones was Ken Corning. Ken Corning came out about the same time that the first Perry Mason novel did. Um, Ken was a crusader. He worked in a town called Yorktown. The entire town was corrupt. Um, it had some overtones of Red Harvest in it that here, were, here was someone who was trying to use the law instead of a gun to um, convert the city into something worth saving. And that was Ken Corning's role. Um, he had Barney who was some more of a shyster. Um, he had a, the Pete Warnick city which was kind of amusing. Um, Pete is a classically trained lawyer, but Pete is a troubleshooter. They have someone in the law firm who is well connected, except he's an idiot. 
And so they kind of need a nanny for him. And so Pete takes this job as a classically trained lawyer, but he ends up being more of a nanny for this um, other lawyer. And so the cases tend to be those where he is going around cleaning up for this other man and solving the case at hand. So it was kind of a twist on, he was a crusader, but he was also something of a shyster too, and the, the things he had to do in order to clean up were not always on the up and up. We wouldn't have pulp magazines without our loners. Um, Ed Jenkins was the best known character that Gardner wrote. Um, he was a classic loner, mostly appeared in Black Mask. Um, there was one story that did not, and if anyone here knows why there's one story that did not make it into there, I have no idea why one story out of the entire collection was published in another magazine, but it was. Um, he was a traditional loner. He does develop a relationship with Helen. Um, Gardner set up this huge romance, which Gardner did not do romance. Gardner did male characters and female characters just said yes sir, no sir, and kind of hung around and admired the male characters. Um, he wrote the Helen character. She was supposed to be um, a Romeo and Juliet type of thing. She was the society person. He was the um, criminal, and so they were never supposed to get together. Readers and editors were screaming for them to get together. Gardner finally um, marries them off. He decides to write a story about them living together, the editors hate it, and so the next story Gardner wrote, he killed off Helen. And so um, that was pretty much how he handled his relationships and mysteries. Um, this ran from 1925 to, as I said, 1961. It was commissioned by Argosy just after he finished The Court of Last Resort. Um, the Court of Last Resort is um, a nonfiction project that Gardner worked with. It's kind of a pre-innocence project. Gardner did um, a series of interviews with the Saturday Evening Post in the mid-1940s where he talked about the fact that he was a big advocate for the underdog. Um, he really wanted this to be about selling Perry Mason to the radio and he wanted it to be um, a, ve a vehicle for him to get more listeners. And instead what happened was this article, these series of articles were, were read by these people who were having legal troubles. And they wrote to Gardner by the thousands and asked for help in solving a mystery surrounding who had actually committed the crime, help in getting out of prison, help from, um, some of them were on death row, helping them to commute the sentence or do something else or helping them to get out on parole. And so he, Gardner took about 10 years of his, a little longer than 10 years of his career, and worked on this um, court of last resort where he, they actually, he and a group of forensic experts, 1940s forensic experts, of course, um, took the time and went through about 2,000 different cases and um, got quite a few people, uh, had their sentence commuted, had the law changed in several instances. Um, some of the cases were reviewed by like the California Supreme Court and um, actually developed case law out of this. And so um, Argosy Magazine was one of the big advocates of this. Gardner would write articles for Argosy saying, look, this is the situation. Um, in one case, 
a man had actually appealed his case up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had ruled on it, and Gardner found out that um, someone else had committed the crime. And there was absolutely no manner legally for this man to challenge um, the case at that point. The Supreme Court had ruled there was no one else to talk to about it. And so he wrote articles for Argosy Magazine. Argosy was trying to reinvent itself from the 1920s, 30s version of the magazine um, to a more slick version. And they signed on to this court of last resort where they started publishing these articles by Gardner about some of these cases. And as a result then, Argosy started getting Gardner to write about some of his pulps again. And so um, this last Ed Jenkins case was one of the ones that was done. Um, Gardner also wrote Speed Dash. Speed Dash was one of the most G-rated pulp characters ever around. He did not cuss. He did not do anything. He never had a pure thought. And in fact, he got his special abilities from the fact that he lived a pure life. And that is how the stories went. And so Gardner, who was a drinker and a cursor and everything else, struggled with these stories immensely because you know, in his stories, the characters cussed, and if they didn't like it, if the editors didn't like it, he was just like, I cuss characters, cuss people, cuss. That's the way it is. And so Speed Dash was one that um, he tried to upend that and do something different to somewhat awkward results. Um, patent Leather Kid, um, there is a collection of all the Patent Leather Kid stories. There are a few collections of some of these. Um, this is all the collected stories of Patent Leather Kid. Um, some Ed Jenkins stories have appeared too. Carolyn Graff did a number of anthologies in the 80s and 90s where they collected a bunch of the Ed Jenkins stories into collections. Um, and a lot of those are still available used from different people. You can buy those. Um, the last one, and this is something that really Gardner is unfortunately not known for. He had a series of happy-go-lucky criminals. And when you think of Earl Stanley Gardner and you think of his writings, you really do not think of humor. And it's really too bad because Gardner the man had a great sense of humor. Um, he was all about a laugh. He was a storyteller. He was a joke teller. He liked to play practical jokes, all of these things. And especially once he got into the groove with writing the Perry Mason story, that just did not come out as much as it could have. Um, Bob Crowder was one of the first Gardner series characters, had a great sense of humor, was kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. Um, Paul Pry was another one. Um, he actually was leading um, kind of a crusade against underworld characters. And um, he really made it into just one big joke. He didn't take things seriously, he had a good time while he was doing it. He's fighting these mobsters, but yet it's not gonna get him down. He's just gonna have a good time. And so there was a lot of comedy in some of these that you really open up these stories and they're not what you expect from um, some of Gardner's work. Lester Leith was the other of two Gardner's major pulp fiction creations, Jenkins being the other one. Um, he wrote 65 short works with Leith in them. Only six of them have ever been anthologized, which is a shame. Ellery Queen did an Ellery Queen Presents collection of those in 1980, I want to say. Um, he, the magazine, Ellery Coon Mystery Magazine, had taken them from the pulps, 
reprinted them in the Mystery Magazine in the 1950s, in late 1950s, early 60s. And so those are the only six that are ever now anthologized. If you see a Lester Leeds story somewhere, it's going to be one of those six. Um, I can tell you, though, um, one of the things that is happening is, I don't know if many of you are familiar with Crippen and Landrew Press. Um, they do single author short story collections in the mystery field. They've done a number of pulp fiction collections. I'm actually going to be the publisher starting next year. And one of the first collections that I'm doing is the Lester Leeds collection. So there will be a new collection. There's eight stories in it. Um, and that'll be coming out sometime early next year from the press. So I am really excited about that. Um, this is probably um, of my pulp, of the pulp fiction characters that he wrote about. This is definitely my favorite of his characters. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, Leith was a criminal. He was a thief. He liked to steal things. Um, the police were on to him. They installed a butler in his house who was actually a policeman. Um, Leith would then was aware of this. He thought it was a great joke, and so he would still go about his business of stealing from people, and he would involve this butler slash policeman in his cases by telling him what items he needed in order to do this crime. So he might need a ball of string and some candle wax and a newspaper and a monkey. And you would read this story and think, well, what is he going to do with all these things? And by the end of the story, sure enough, he had the jewels or the cash or whatever he had done. The police were stymied as to how this had happened. And he had used every one of those things that he had asked for. So these were just fun stories in that there was a slight mystery involved in them as to how is he going to use this, how is he going to get away with this crime. And yet at the same time, they were just really fun to read. Um, I have some time left, so I thought I would leave it open for questions. I could talk about this all night, so <laughs> yes. Have the lesser, uh, I mean, uh, Not as an entire volume. Carolyn Graff did three or four collections of them in the 80s, 90s time frame, and those are still available. Um, but no, there hasn't been anything since then. They unfortunately, or fortunately or unfortunately, they chose some of the very best Ed Jenkins stories, and so then there was less inclination to do more collections because some of the best stories had already been selected. Any more questions? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Um, you mentioned that uh, Garner was concerned about not being in the office. Right. And, but he, he wrote a tremendous amount. So when did he have an opportunity to do all these wonderful things he wanted to do out of the office? He, um, well, when he started, um, he started while he was still a lawyer and with the 10,000 words a day. So he would come home from hard day's work at the law office or in court or whatever, have dinner with his wife, and then sit down from about 6 p.m. until about 2 a.m. and type. Um, he got three hours of sleep a night for the first several years that he was able to do this. Um, 
at some point he became more flexible to schedule. He went to a part-time schedule for a while with the law firm where he was able to travel some. Um, he traveled to um, China. He traveled to the South Pacific, South Seas. Um, he traveled around through Baja, Southern California, all these different places. But he took a typewriter and a lot of times secretaries with him. So when he was in the South Seas, they were experiencing bad weather. Um, and so he tells a story about how one night he had to get his 10,000 words in. The only place that wasn't falling over, all the tables and were, you know, tip over, chairs would fall over. The only place it wasn't was a toilet. And so he put his typewriter on the back of the toilet, straddled the seat, and did his 10,000 words. And so he was very um, persistent about it. He knew what he wanted and he knew this was the way to get it. And so the typewriters just went with him wherever he went. Um, he got to where he, after a while, he was not a good typist. He was a two-finger typist. Um, and he got to where he would use a dictaphone because um, he was at a point, he was making enough money to hire secretaries. And so he used the secretaries then to transcribe um, everything he did. They were phenomenal in terms of what they did because he said the words. They, they, the secretaries then had to transcribe, put in the punctuation, and everything else that went with it. So most times when you have someone doing transcription work, you have to say, this is capital T, this is my sentence, period. He wouldn't do that. He would just say, this is my sentence. And they would know capital at the beginning, period at the end. And I'm giving a simple example, but they would do um, single quotes within dialogue and all sorts of crazy things. And um, he was very particular about his, the secretaries that he used. So, yes? In the collection that you're doing, are they uh, going to be as published, or are you doing any from original manuscripts that things might be edited? Or? Um, we are doing as published. Um, the estate is very concerned about doing, there are a lot of partial manuscripts available, and they have let me see them, but um, unless the book is a finished, pro unless the story or book is a finished product, they're really leery of letting anyone touch it. And a lot of things that are in there are things that were started and stopped for whatever reason. There's the start of about seven Perry Mason novels that I got to read. And it was fascinating to see a couple of them he would cannibalize for another book, but there were four or five that would be like, wow, this would be an interesting thing. I wonder what obstacle he came up against that he chose not to finish this book. I don't know. They tried to do that with someone in the 1980s, and they were not a success. Um, Who did they use? Thomas Chastain, I think, is his name. Um, Perry Mason was, like I said, indicated before, he was a figure of action. There was, I don't think in any of the books, any interior monologue, which is the character thinking to himself. 
he would tell Paul Drake, he would tell Della, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get this man off by doing this. He would never have the character think. And the Chastain books had a lot of interior monologue. And the first thing you notice when you open it up is, wow, we're going to see Perry's thoughts. And they were so radically different from the original types of books that it was, they just weren't as popular and um, they didn't sell. So there is, I don't know if you were aware, Robert Downey Jr. has purchased the film rights to Perry Mason right now. Um, and they are having a devil of a time trying to get something written that they think will do justice to the character. So it was going to be a film, then it was going to be an HBO series, and um, that's kind of on hold now, and I don't know what it's going to be next. But they're trying to do something. But it's, unless that's the way you kind of train yourself to write, it is really hard for someone who's used to talking about what the characters feel and what they're experiencing inside to write Perry Mason because it's, this is action, this is him talking, and there wasn't really a lot of deep thought. Yeah. I noticed you didn't mention any of the Doug Selby novels, and he was an unusual, wasn't an impulsive book, right. but he was an unusual character for Gardner because he was a district attorney. Mm -hmm. And Gardner, by his very nature, often fought district attorneys. Yes. Namely, uh, Mr. Burke. And Doug Selby was a far different character. I mean, he was, he was very popular in the paperbacks yes. in the late 40s and early 50s. And I'll be quite honest, um, I had to cut some stuff for this to fit the time frame, and Doug Selby's just never been a favorite of mine. <laughs> so, do you really? I know, I have a lot of friends who say the same thing and they yell at me and say, you need to read them again. I have a lot of friends who say the same thing, that they, that's their favorite of the Gardner characters. Uh, well, not the famous characters, but well, yeah. But I am a cool lamb guy, so, so Bertha Cool and Donna Lamb, all the way for me, so. Yeah, so it's just so kind of. Was idealistic yes. Mm -hmm. They, I mean, I liked a couple of books, and some of them were, but, yeah, I just had to cut some things for time's sake. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over twenty years. Please visit us online at the Pulp. Dot net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2017.